This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Today's episode is sponsored by Audible.com. For a free audiobook of your choice, head on over to audiblepodcast.com slash brainmatters. Thanks, Audible, for supporting our show. Hey everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. For today's episode, I had a conversation with Dr. Alex Huck, who's an associate professor at the University of Texas in Austin. Dr. Huck's lab has been trying to understand how our brains process visual information, especially motion, as a way to try and answer an even deeper question, which is what is the language or neural code which brain cells use to process information and guide our behavior? In the interview, we'll talk about why the visual pathway is a good place to start for trying to answer this question. We also will get to answer some interesting questions about how our brains are able to extract the slightly different patterns of light that fall onto each of our eyes in order to construct motion in three-dimensional space. Now, before we get to the talk, I just want to say that this was really special for me to get to speak to Alex. I'm currently doing my graduate studies here at UT Austin, and Alex is a friend to myself and everyone in the department. He also has a pretty amazing chess set in his office that you uh, really have to see. Um, All right, uh, let's get to it. So what kind of questions does your lab currently address? And let's let's frame this from just like the most broadest perspective. Like what are the, the big questions that you are hoping to address in your lab? Yeah, uh, there are two ways to answer that question. The most general way is a little abstract, but it's actually what motivates me and keeps me up. The abstract things too. Yeah, so that's a nice way to introduce this to, to a broad and lay audience, right? Uh, No, but, you know, everybody knows that there are neurons in your brain and that they're important, if not the essential components of any sort of intelligent action or cognition behavior that, that we have. And most people at this point even know that they communicate by um, electrical impulses that flow from one neuron to another and from one part of the brain to another part of the brain. But we don't really know what those patterns of electrical activity mean. We don't know how brain area B interprets brain area A. And we don't know how 
you know, these things can be changed as a function of needing to do different things or of learning or of development. And so it's, you know, the most abstract level, I think it's a pretty fundamental question that hopefully most people sort of get, which is we got to know what language the brain is speaking. Okay. And so we end up picking more specific questions where we think we might be able to get some rather quantitative traction on these sorts of issues. Okay, cool. So that's the big, that's an overarching question that motivates you. Under that umbrella, yeah, what are the more specific questions that you decided to tackle? And maybe could you tell us why those questions are the ones that you decided to choose? Sure, sure. Um, we study two specific content areas. One is uh, the integration of uh, the signals that the eyes receive, patterns of light that are, of course, changing over space and time constantly. So we focus on sort of what we call binocular motion perception. Um, and the other area that we study is then how various types of motion signals are sort of interpreted and in particular accumulated to form decisions. So sometimes when you look at something and it's a little vague, you might need a little time to really feel like you've made a good guess about what it is. And so that, that's a very tractable model system for studying something that's not purely perceptual. Okay. So you're looking at both the the pure almost information coming in, the, the light and how that is being represented in the brain, and then taking it also to the next level, like what does that information mean and how does that correlate to decisions? Could you tell us the motivation as to, you said it was a tractable system, what makes it tractable? And is there a foundation that this is sitting on that makes it you know very attractive to study? Sure, sure. I'd, I'd say there, there are two primary components that make this a great model system. Uh, one is that other people have done a lot of hard work, and uh, the second one is just a bit of luck. So I think um, sort of probably in a synergistic, feedbacky cycle way, people have focused on motion perception in uh, various parts of the primate brain because it's a relatively simple circuit. It's probably the sort of thing that any primate over their lifespan and over their evolutionary heritage have had to get really good at. And so you can look at the brains of very small non-human primates, or you can look at the brains of one another in the lab of humans and uh, find pretty much the same core areas in the same circuit. And even at the level of the individual neurons, they seem to do the same thing. So people have really piled on to what we call the wear pathway or the dorsal stream. And so over the last 30 years, there's just been this wonderful body of work where people have, in much more detailed ways, I think, that, than in a lot of domains, really worked out how the first stages of the brain interpret patterns of light coming off the retinas uh, as, as motion, and then how later regions start to really interpret that uh, in terms of what's out there in the environment. Okay. So we sort of go from what's hitting rods and cones in the retina as a function of space and time to good guesses back about the environment. Hey, I think that's two objects moving in slightly different directions. Or no, I think that's just one big object and I have a poor estimate of its specific direction. Those sorts of, those are the sorts of inferences that. Okay. Could you tell us how, cause, I can imagine that you just gave that example of trying to differentiate between, say, two objects or one, you know, lumping that together. 
that sounds like a pretty complicated thing to do. What are the components of it that have been like hammered out or that are the simple parts? And then what are the ones that are really are complicated and are kind of unknown? Sure, sure. So, um, and in, in some ways this will be, uh, uh, the completion of the luck component that, oh, yeah. that I just mentioned, <laughs> which is the general rule of the brain, which I think is underappreciated is that most neurons respond to most things. You know, if you go and record from a neuron almost anywhere, its response will change as a function of lots of different things. And this is even the case in seemingly simple brain areas and thought to be involved in processing sensory information. This is not just neurons that do thinking and complicated things. And so, you know, if you have a neuron in the visual system, its response will change as a function of many, many different parameters of that visual stimulation. The orientation, the brightness, the contrast, the color, so on. And in the case of motion, there are a couple brain areas that are actually made of neurons that respond to different directions of motion, but which are insensitive to basically anything else. And that's a bit of a cartoon. There certainly are things outside of direction of motion that, that can affect these neurons. Uh, but they, they're pretty clean. They're pretty simple. And so it becomes very easy to sort of look at how these neurons change their responses as a function of direction, because we don't have to worry about their sort of reflecting 10 other things at the same time. Okay. Although they do respond to many other forms of stimuli, is that the one that drives them the most? That's the one they're selective for. I see. So, of course, anything in the visual system will respond in some way to almost any visual pattern of stimulation. Uh, but to get what some of these neurons to change their response and to change their response in a big and systematic way, uh, you really have to be manipulating the direction of motion. Okay. Could you tell us where this brain region is and also then how did someone f decide that would be where they would look? How did they figure out that that was where motion was coded or at least seemingly those neurons like or respond to them? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, th this is yet another bit of just luck in science that there does happen to be pretty much a brain area that is a hub for direction of motion. In other words, all the neurons respond to some particular direction of motion and don't do much else. And they're all co-localized in a little patch. Uh, in the human brain, uh, this area, which is known as MT for historical reasons, um, is pretty much kind of behind your ear. So it's in the occipital lobe or right where the occipital lobe starts to connect with the temporal lobe and the parietal lobe. It's usually tucked into a little fold and you can find this brain area in any primate that's been studied well, typically tucked in a sulcus in the, you know, sort of area between the occipital and parietal and temporal lobes. Okay, the sulcus are just the folds that you can see right on the brain, just say, yes. sort of a little canyon or something. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of tucked in one of those pretty little folds. We okay. like to think it's it's a really important part of the brain, so it's protected in there. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you, um, so how did they find out that, like, how did they find this area and were they just poking around, flashing visual stimuli on a screen and... I think it's a mix of blind exploration with a, a bit of guidance from things like anatomy. Mm. So one of the great things about the visual system uh, when you study the brain is that you know where things come into the brain from. They come in from the eyes. So you can, you know, do anatomical studies to follow the nerve paths that run from the eyes through some intermediate stuff to the brain. 
and then from one brain area to the next. But of course, once you're in the brain, it's tough to know which brain area is which and what they might do. And so that's where a bit of the physiological exploration really just sort of netted this area. Um, and one of the most striking and easy ways to find it if you're studying a human is just to put them in an fMRI brain scanner, uh, which measures an indirect correlate of brain activity, and have them look at things that move and compare the activity you measure in the brain to when they're looking at stuff, but that is not moving. And there's usually a moderate amount of activity all over the brain, but there's always this one really nice hot spot. It's this empty, one. I'm guessing. And it's empty, <laughs> and it's right behind your ear, right. and it's tucked in that sulcus. Little fold. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, great. Okay, so now we know about where that region is and that these neurons are maybe giving the rest of the brain a code that I'm seeing motion. So uh, I guess then what is the next step in the, the the question. So these neurons respond to maybe things moving to the left, but not the right. How does the brain interpret then the more complicated things, like you said, that it's two objects moving left or one object moving right and one moving left? And yeah, how does it put that together? Yeah, so I, I'd actually say that's about where our really detailed knowledge ends. Okay. Um, and, you know, that's decades of seminal and really beautiful work that that built this. And, you know, I don't want to take it for granted. The fact that we really know where in the brain to go and we know the building blocks of the signals, we know generally what they mean, we know how to, how to manipulate them, we know where they come from in terms of the earlier stages of processing. That's pretty fantastic, and I think there are a lot of well-studied brain areas where we don't have that privilege, you know, that degree of detail, all the way from the world to a quantitative understanding of sort of what the activity tells us about, about some aspect of perception. But once you start asking more interesting questions, not just, hey, how does the brain represent left versus right? That's in whether the neurons that respond to leftward motion or rightward motion are responding more or less. Um, then it really becomes this sort of neural language or neural coding issue. And, and that's what a lot of people work on. And that's why a lot of people focus on this brain area. So the way I like to think about it is that we always sort of reference our measurements of the neural activity back to some very simple essence of the visual display that we are using to generate that pattern of activity. Um, but in fact, the brain as a whole isn't trying to figure out what the visual display in an experiment is. It's actually trying to make an inference about what would really be out there in the real world. Mm, okay. And so these are things um, that are typically much richer and, you know, to us, more interesting and more intuitive than the sorts of very limited and seemingly sort of arcane visual stimuli that we might use in an experiment in a laboratory setting. And so, you know, a lot of what we try to do is to sort of flip the problem and stop just interpreting neural activity as a function of our experiment and start trying to see how that neural activity is actually an, a guess or an interpretation of what might really be out there in the world. Okay. You're looking at neural code or the activity of X amount of neurons or something, and then trying to say, how does that tell me about what the animal is either doing or is it, or just what it's seeing? Those are the questions you're interested in now? Yeah, ab yeah. absolutely. Okay. Um, and, y you know, if it's an animal study, of course, you can't ask them. If it's a human study, you can often just sort of get an intuition for, really, we just want to know 
what you're capable of in terms of behavioral reactions to visual stimuli, or you could a little more loosely say, we just want to know what you see, what your perceptual experience is like. It's a little easier to measure behaviors than to, you know, measure perceptual reports, but they're hopefully pretty much dovetailed. Okay, I think let's take a little deviation. We'll come back at some point and maybe talk about some of the pieces that your lab specifically has really added to this puzzle. But to get there, can we, let's just talk about maybe like where you grew up in your family structure and stuff like that. It was, uh, I think, pretty vanilla. I grew up in northern New Jersey, um, not too far outside of New York City, but far enough just to be in a generic suburb. Okay. And, and what did your parents do too? Uh, my dad was a clinical psychologist and uh, my mother uh, mostly uh, spent time in the house with us and uh, attended to a f- occasional jobs. Okay. Well, so clinic. So you had a clinical psychologist in the house. Did, was he always uh, psychoanalyzing you and... Uh... <laughs> From an early age, he he, he may have been, but um, <laughs> it didn't it, come it, off. It wasn't. Yeah, I, okay. I I never felt like I was on the couch for that reason. You did okay, good. <laughs> so yeah, okay, cool. What did you like? What got you into maybe science? I guess did you have any um like in high school? Were you into your science classes at the time, or did you have some other kinds of things that were interesting you at that point? Yeah. You, you're gonna, you're wondering why I was smiling at you the whole time you're asking that question. He was, he has a, he had a huge smile on his face. So my guess is no. <laughs> I, I was a, a relatively disinterested student pretty much through high school. Okay. I did find the world interesting and I like to tinker with stuff. Uh, one of my fondest memories of childhood is spending a summer trying to build a steering mechanism for a go-kart. Turns out to be a hard problem when you're about 11 years old. Um. <laughs> um, but yeah, to be honest, uh, I was underperforming in school and, um, you know, you could have a lot of benign or negative guesses about why that was. Um, but uh, I did get lucky. I got fortunate to go to a liberal arts college where there was a lot of real investment in the undergraduate educational experience and lots of opportunities to sort of jump in at a you know, either in research or just to get to know how faculty were thinking about things. And so the world being an interesting place really then had, you know, had legs for me. Okay. Where was this at too? This was Swarthmore College, which is a small place in Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, And, you know, it was a great place. So it certainly felt like a, you know, like a safe bet. Um, And it it was a hard place. Um, But actually, I, uh, I started out assuming I'd be something like an English major, because if there was one thing I liked to do, uh, before I went to college, it was read. And so I figured that this would be more reading. Uh, if there's anything that drove me sort of into, you know, psychology slash neuroscience, it was my experience in English literature classes. Interesting. Okay. Which struck me as attempts to make inferences about what makes people tick. And I find that to be a very interesting question. Uh, but I didn't seem like they had a lot of tools and it wasn't clear sort of what the gold standards were. And I'm not a hard believer in there's a deep, single truth that we all have to find. But it seemed a bit unconstrained for my tastes. Okay. Were there any authors or things that were really, that got a hold of you or they can remember really being, that you really enjoyed and maybe got your interest in how people tick? Uh, yeah, not not really, actually. I mean, uh, I'll be really honest. I mean, these were intense 
classes, but I remember really disliking them and feeling like we're all sitting here talking and wouldn't it be great if we had something else that we could all share? It's almost the distaste of that level was what it drove me (laughs) elsewhere. Elsewhere. Okay. Um, and, but you, you know, we all want to understand what makes people tick, whether that's as a lay person or as a scientist. And uh, my comfort level was just somewhere else. Okay. And what was the next step at that point? I sort of just broadened my horizons into the liberal arts. And, uh, you know, for me, that meant um, a mix of sort of core requirement classes that I really loved. Uh, one of my favorite classes was a signal processing class in the engineering department. Um, but I also really um, got hooked by cognitive psychology, which was the closest thing at the time we had to anything like neuroscience, systems neuroscience. Okay. Was this still in an undergraduate setting? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This was still in the undergrad setting. Okay. So you, you got a taste of it there. and Yeah. That- there was a, one faculty member who did it. Okay. He was new. He was setting up a lab. And he was in the lab all the time. Okay. And did so, you show up someday or? Yeah, I think I took a, uh, took a class and, you know, an introductory class might have eight people. And so you would get to know people. And the next thing I knew, I had a couple projects going on in the lab and, you know, had a spot to sleep there and, <laughs> and all that sort of good stuff. Cool. Uh, what did he, uh, what kind of stuff did you study then? Or what was the research that you were doing at that level? Uh, There was a whole range of stuff going on. And that's one of the fun things about research in the liberal arts setting that, you know, I I think not every faculty member has to be the world's foremost expert in one thing. Uh, They can actually allow themselves to get interested in a broad range of topics. And that's good for the students so that they don't just get a very myopic, specialized um, perspective. Uh, There was a fair amount of visual perception stuff going on. And so uh, that was good because it forced me to teach myself how to program experiments on computers. And all of a sudden, I realized that thing we were missing in English literature classes was data. Wouldn't it be great if we did something systematic and we could all say this is a good test of an idea and then we could see what the result was. And we might want to improve that and iterate and titrate and do all the things that we normally do in science. But that would be a really nice handhold. Okay, so, and then after you graduated college, did, did you have somewhere to go after that, or what was the next step, yeah? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of waiting for, yeah, when did I, when did I get when with the it, program, <laughs> and, uh, well... When did it lock in? No, I mean, no. Uh, yeah, I was very lucky. Um, you know, so, so I got into Stanford for grad school, um, because Swarthmore is a really good place to come from, and because I was really interested in the work that I was doing, and I think that conveyed... Uh, but I still had no idea what I was interested in. Uh, my first year, I really didn't have any traction. Um, I changed advisors in my second year. I changed advisors in a very uh, uncompelling and unimpressive way. <laughs> uh, and uh, I said things to other faculty when I was trying to figure out, you know, if this was for me and what I was going to do that at the time I was very embarrassed by. I... I remember telling a member of the National Academy of Sciences uh, when he asked me, well, what are you really interested in? I said, well, I tend to get interested in sort of whatever I work on for a while. Yeah. <laughs> and I spent about 10 years sort of kicking myself for having having said something that at the time sounded really immature. But now I've got another 10, 15 years past that, and I'm kind of proud of it. 
because I think the world is an interesting place. And even if you limit that to just to the brain, there's a lot going on. And if you don't keep an open mind about finding things that are interesting, uh, it can get kind of dry and you can miss the big questions and end up being a specialist. I'm not sure that everyone has to be a specialist. So you went to grad school and at Stanford and did you end up in a lab that kind of did similar things to what you do now? Yeah. So, so once I switched labs and found an advisor um, that, that I worked with through through the rest of my PhD, um, one could say, yes, and I'm that's the stuff, I, uh, you know, that's very similar to what I work on now. But, uh, you know, again, I mean, I picked that lab less on content and more on process. Uh, similar to my experience as an undergrad, uh, I think I wasn't clicking at first in grad school because I was going after very specific content areas that I thought would be the most interesting um, without knowing a ton about what's out there and uh, how the field works. Um, and then I picked that other lab because I thought I like how they talk about science. Um, it seems to me that they get somewhere each time they do an experiment. And some of that's just a personal decision, although there may be you know, deep truths about, you know, who's making more progress than other people. But uh, I, it, for me, it was process. It's like, that sounds rigorous in a way that appeals to me. And I think I can catch up in terms of skill set. Okay. What were some of the, I guess, lessons and maybe even some of the findings that you did in graduate school in maybe to frame how you want, like, did that hook you then? It's, it sounds like if you were still kind of doing stuff in that vein, it must have grabbed you in some way. Yeah, I definitely got hooked on the content uh, and not just the process, although that took years. Um, that was really in writing my thesis that the big picture started to really click for me. And it's really when I fell in love with um, the topic we started out talking about, which is what does information code, you know, coding mean in the brain? How is information conveyed? I read a book uh, called Spikes. That at the time was a pretty new book, but now is a classic that every grad student should should read each year. You get I still get a little bit more out of each reread, um, and just seeing the power of of the particular model system, this motion perception dorsal stream stuff, that at the time was really just maturing and peaking in a lot of uh, specific ways. Uh, I found really compelling. Uh, that said, most of the stuff I did in my PhD, although I'm very proud of it, um, if there if there was something that still pushed me to try a little something different down the road and that I learned a lot from, uh, was that a lot of what I did was um, a recapitulation and generalization of classic findings. So I did a lot of work in the human brain, and really um, the tools available to study the human brain are... Um, non-invasive and so they're therefore rather limited in terms of what sort of a view you get of neural activity. They're indirect, they're coarse. Um, it's very different to look at a blob of activity uh, on an MRI of a human brain compared to looking at the you know discharge of an individual neuron firing action potentials. So uh, you know although I did a lot of nice stuff and I learned a lot about how motion perception works in writing my thesis and, and doing these studies. Uh, I, I think it would be fair to say that someone had done a lot of this work 10, 15 years prior um, using other techniques in other, other species. 
And that um, while it's important to generalize across species, and I think that's an important way that, you know, human and animal work needs to dovetail and, and, and needs to, you know, make sure that the things when we do animal studies, that they really do tell us about the human brain. Uh, you know, it was, um, I never felt like, wow, I was really just standing over this cliff staring into the complete unknown. <laughs> so it was great training. We sort of knew the way, right yeah. answer. Um, and it was all the puzzle of how are we going to check against this known fact, given that the tools we have are rudimentary. And you said it was recapitulating old things, but making sure that it, you could see that similar thing in humans. Yeah. So, you know, we both learned how to refine some techniques. And, you know, there are certainly things you learn in doing human studies that are very hard to do in animal studies at the level of understanding the relation to perceptual experience and behavior. Um, and so it wasn't just good skill set training and good sort of, you know, service in terms of generalizing out cross species findings. But, you know, that those little glimpses I got of, wow, that's actually new. We didn't really know the answer there are the sorts of things that are very addictive. And so the, those are the those are really the motivating little experiences I had in grad school. Beyond the fact that my advisor was really wonderful and I just learned a lot, I think, about how to do science, how to think clearly, how to manage projects, how to work in a team. Okay, who's a great that? experience. Uh, David Heeger. Okay, cool. Just want to shout out to him. Yes. <laughs> I love David. Awesome. Yeah, so from there, did you also know at that point that you wanted to keep doing academic style research or did you just at that point want to keep sort of asking those types of questions in whatever way that would be? Um, yeah, I, you know, I may be a bad model for a lot of people who are sort of, you know, going through their training and thinking very carefully about career paths and career options. I am one of these people who just sort of kept doing what I was doing. And, you know, I don't think there's a sort of forward time uh, way of figuring out why things worked out. I think, you know, I'm just one of these people where it happened to work out yeah. and we can look back and, you know, pretend to explain it. But, you know, it's, it's a little, you know, these people who make a lot of money in the stock market, it's the same yeah. thing, right? Someone's got to. Uh, but yeah, no, I, um, I was definitely hooked at that point. I never really thought about other stuff. And so, you know, I went on to do a postdoc at the University of Washington in Seattle and uh, learned a lot of new techniques and was in a lab where there were just really brave ideas being thrown around. Um, a lot of new, both mathematical and neuroscientific techniques were getting uh, not just developed, but getting integrated. And so this notion of being able to build sort of a little machine on your computer that simulates what's going on, not just in the brain, but that would explain behavior. Um, and then, you know, sort of testing that and refining it with brain measurements was, was a really great experience for me. So then did, you went on, obviously, now as a professor. What was it like, I, maybe the feeling of having your own lab? What was, what was going through your head, I guess, when you were setting up? Well, I'm, I'm still looking for, okay, I finally started, you know, having a master plan. Things actually worked out yet again, a few strokes of luck. Uh, the primary reason I got the faculty position here at UT was because my wife, who was also in academics, was being recruited from the University of Washington, where she had a faculty position, um, uh, to UT. And so I was a spousal hire. This is a wonderful mechanism at UT, and I'm, you know, eternally grateful for their flexibility. 
And so, in fact, I got this job a little early in my postdoc training. I feel like I was not well prepared in terms of just maturity and having a lot of momentum and independence at the le level of most senior postdocs nowadays to start my lab. And so I sort of showed up and all of a sudden I was basically still a midterm postdoc now with a budget and no advisor. Uh, and so the first few years were really hard. Um, and uh, I definitely would have done things very differently. Most of what I tried to do was just keep doing what I've been doing. And what that entailed were relatively small extensions and what-ifs and follow-ups of the work I'd been doing as a postdoc. And I think that's where I learned tons. You know, one of the first things you have to do when you're setting up a lab is uh, set it up, <laughs> use it, but then you are done in terms of financial support. The university gives you a startup package, you spend it to set your lab up, um, and then you're supposed to start bringing in grants from things like the National Institutes of Health or the NSF. And my grants, which were relatively modest in scope and were clearly just sort of not big picture motivated sets of studies, were really just hammered by the reviews. And it took years and years for me to get uh, my first grant funded. And I learned tons about how to think independently, how to pick off questions that other people will find interesting and not just that I know I can do because I've been doing similar stuff. And that's really where, when, even though it was really tough, I came out of that feeling like, right, the whole point of this is to figure out what questions are important and then to figure out how to do the experiments. And I just always been figuring out how to do this experiment. And I love the puzzle of designing an experiment or getting some technique to work or here's how to solder this or here's how to write this in computer code. But what got me into this in the first place was things are interesting. And I'd forgotten that for a long time. I see. So having like a vision of how to merge the big questions and with the techniques is the, was, did that like, do you, do you feel you're getting better at that now? Yeah. Yeah. And things got really fun. I mean, cool. th there was a dark period where <laughs> I do believe my university phone bill bounced against my startup account. Oh, dang. Um, <laughs> And I'm pretty sure the solution to that... You sent too that, many text messages and... The so, oh, this was like pre-text. Okay. But yeah, the solution to that was, I think I said, I don't think I need a phone, really. Yeah, you can just unplug it. <laughs> you can email me. That's free, right? Um, yeah, so that, that was a real turnaround point. I, I remember writing the grant that finally got funded, and I started the grant out saying, look, I now realize, thank you, that for not you know, me yeah that i've i've been picking off really small problems and here here are the real questions here are the ways i would have framed these experiments very differently and i would have come up with different details in these experiments had i been thinking generally as opposed to just sort of staying in postdoc mode and it was a very probably an oddly and uniquely personal sort of grant I did talk a lot about how things had been and how they'd been interpreted, and it wasn't just AIM-1, AIM-2, AIM-3, and all the experiments. But it worked, and I'm really grateful to the study section for sort of, I think, you know, the study section or the group of reviewers at, at an agency like National Institutes of Health. 
that revere Grants, and I think that somehow clicked with with enough people where they I think they realized now's the time to give this guy some money because he's thinking independently. Um, and since then, every time I write a grant, I make sure I don't submit that thing until I think it's got a good idea. Um, there are times when I've waited on sub resubmitting a grant or submitting a grant or trying to renew a grant, even though it would be administratively convenient, like we need the money, <laughs> uh, or it's just sort of the right time in, in the natural rhythm uh, because the idea isn't quite mature. And so now it's always ideas first, and that's that's become very rewarding. Can we then talk maybe about research that you it could be from any time since your idea idea driven research has you know sprouted so let's can we just add like what are some of the pieces of that puzzle of motion processing or maybe even decision making that you've sort of added sure yeah i think the the motion processing and motion perception stuff is is really easy to appreciate in terms of the idea so the really simple idea is that we all know that when you walk around the world and when things move in the world, they move in space. Space is three-dimensional. Plus, there's also time, so the world is sort of four dimensions in terms of how we like to think about it. Four dimensions is pretty big, right? Four dimensions gets unwieldy. You can't just draw something four-dimensional. You know, we always joke about, you know, well, how should I think about four dimensions? Well, you know, just, just imagine... 42 dimensions and then throw 38 out, you know, um, it's, it starts to get abstract, right? Mm. And so likewise in science, when people have studied motion perception, they've tried to really sort of reduce the number of dimensions that they have to be thinking about. In other words, nothing is in 3D, okay? Everything is as simple as possible. And that's great. And I think it got us very far. So when you do an experiment in a typical motion perception sort of domain, you have some stuff up on a computer screen, you look at it, you say whether it moves left or right, okay? So you have the left versus right axis, and then you have time, which is, of course, an integral part of motion, right? Motion can't occur if there's no time to pass. Uh, and so that's sort of a two-dimensional version of the problem. Okay. Maybe people will study the difference between up and down and left and right and all the directions that you can show on a flat computer screen. Um, but very, very few people have actually tried to study the full problem, which is how do things move in three dimensions and how does the brain figure that out? And so that's become it's become a surprisingly rich problem for us. Okay. And is it pretty unknown, basically, you're saying, is like the current field of three-dimensional processing in the brain? We've gotten to two dimensions pretty well, all the stuff we talked about before, but now the third dimension is already in a pretty gray zone? Yeah. And, and you know, th th this is also, I like, I, I now speak about this like it's this big grand idea. But it actually just grew in very innocent and sort of modest ways from a few small observations. First thing people need to know is that m most everything we know about motion processing is would be complete if we only had one eye. So if you only had one eye, you'd only have one view of the world. And the back of the eye, where all the images land, where the light goes, um, is essentially flat. I mean, you know, it's a little curved, but it's a screen. Okay, and there's one screen. And so then pretty much not just our understanding of neurophysiology, which has been 
measured in the context of flat screens presenting motion, and also in terms of our sort of, you know, abstractions of what the information processing is, our computer models of how this works, it would be pretty much complete. And, you know, we like to joke that, hey, I can go download Area MT from someone's web page because someone's made in a really nice simulation. But that's only for this case of looking at flat things on a screen, and it just assumes there's one movie that you're looking at. But you have two eyes. And for almost all people, both eyes provide slightly different information that's used by the brain. And even though you might think, well, my eyes are so close together, they're six centimeters apart, something like that, they see basically the same thing, that's actually not the right way to think about it. And so this, this uh, will not be a complete surprise to everyone. You know that if you want to see a 3D movie, you've got to be looking at that 3D movie through both eyes. Okay, and you've got to have something different going on in the two eyes. Okay, And most people know that really what's going on is that slightly different images are presented to the left and the right eyes, and that slight difference is geometrically consistent with what your eyes would actually be seeing if there was three-dimensional space, Okay, not just a 2D screen. But in the case of motion, it's even more profound. So if you take your thumb and you move it directly towards your nose, I'm doing it right now, everyone. Just... I'm doing it too. That's why I'm going slow. <laughs> if you do that and you just look at your thumb through your right eye, you will notice that your thumb is moving a little bit to the left. Mm -hmm. That's just geometry. Okay. So as something moves towards you, your right eye sees a little bit of leftward motion. That same object, when viewed through the left eye, the other eye, is seeing a little bit of rightward motion. Okay. So this is, it's not paradox, but there's like a pretty significant tension. Basically, most of what we know breaks, okay? If you have a leftward signal and a rightward signal in the same location of space, which is your thumb in this example, we don't know how to deal with that in terms of our understanding of either the neural mechanisms or information processing. In fact, if you just look at left and right motion in the same region of space through one eye, it typically doesn't look like it's really moving. It just looks like something is changing somehow. Okay, it's as if they were going on the same spot, left and rightward yeah. motion on top of each other? They typically, okay. um, you know, if it's a, a very small amount of motion, uh, they'll null one another. And so you really won't be able to see much. You'll just tell that something is a little flickery. Okay. okay? Yeah. Um, but in this case, it would be really bad if um, now mo slightly opposite motions in the left and right eyes were nulled by yeah. the brain because this is something flying towards your head so your thumb is benign you have control over it you're going to stop it before it hits you but if this is a baseball or a tree limb or something like that you need to act you need to act really fast and you need to make really good inferences about exactly what this trajectory is and we realized we don't have the machinery for that so there's a second component which is a little bit more sort of once you know some details in the field um, that, that makes this a really interesting scientific puzzle, um, which is that, you know, even outside of, of scientists who study binocular vision, as I said, we all sort of know that there's something slightly different about what the left eye sees and what the right eye sees. And uh, that is one of the key sources of giving you real rich depth perception. You know, we have other sources that you can get from one eye, but they're just not as perceptually compelling and they're they're typically considered secondary. Yeah. Okay. 
if you want to convince yourself of that, I, close one eye while driving, okay. and don't sue me because you're going to crash okay. if, if you do that. I was going to say I used to try to uh, shoot hoop with uh, with one eye, and you just are terrible at it. It seems easy. The world looks. It, it almost you close one eye and you say I can still kind of tell, and then you shoot the basketball and it just yeah. So flies. You're, you're doing an experiment. It, we we dumb it down a little bit in the lab. But that's exactly too. the sort of thing. Um, so anyway, we 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 all know that something about the mismatch between the left and the right eyes views gives you depth, gives you 3D-ness. And so in, in our field, that's called the binocular disparity. And so it's actually very natural uh, in, in our jargon and in our more specialized knowledge base to say, oh, well, as that disparity changes over time, so if something, you know, that means that will be interpreted by the brain as something is changing its position in depth. So that's how you get that third dimension of motion. That's how you can tell if something's moving towards or away from you. And that's probably something that the brain does do. Um, but in fact, it struck me as really weird because I thought, I'm a motion guy. Where's the motion in this? All of a sudden, we have all this stuff we know about motion. There's this really robust brain circuit that does motion, is specialized for motion, is conserved over tens of millions of years of evolutionary heritage and divergence. And we've just left it. And now we've gone to this binocular disparity stuff. And that struck me as odd. And then again, you know, I thought, well, maybe you use motion in the left and the right eyes to get this 3D direction back out. And it's, it's a really rich source of information. You can tell. Small, simple motions, your thumb moving right towards your head, give you really radically different things in terms of the velocities seen by the two eyes. Yeah. And so we, we just started sort of coming from that perspective and trying to make sense of, of how you know, the multiple sources of information that come from the eyes being in different locations. Yeah. And has that um, led to some, like, have you been able to sort of decode that signal? Are you able to see that maybe the brain is adding those types of one having a leftward motion, one having a rightward motion? Yeah. How, how have you confirmed that that might be true? Yeah. So, so one of the most uh, uh, surprising things for us is that actually that brain area called MT that we all know every neuron likes left or right or up or down or 45, you know, between up and right. Uh, these neurons, many of them, are actually tuned for a direction of motion in three-dimensional space and not just on the flat computer screen. Okay. Um, so, so that's really cool because it means this area we've been studying and calling the motion hub actually is the motion hub. It's not mm -hmm. just the motion hub if you're playing a video game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, 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 for me, actually, the more interesting things we've learned, um, are that even though I like to talk about stuff in terms of, well, motion perception and well, there's actually the real problem is three dimensional motion perception. There's no reason that your brain has evolved to build a circuit to have a single mechanism that does three dimensional motion processing. It's just trying not to get killed and to have some fun before that happens. And so, you know, <laughs> really, it looks like from, from a lot of work we've done, your brain has two ways of figuring out uh, the direction of motion in depth or in 3D. And th there are these two things that we just talked about, using binocular disparities and using the differences in the velocities that the two eyes see. And what's really cool is that even though I could slap the same label on both of these systems, they have totally different operating regimes. So if you're looking right at something, 
and it's moving slowly, you're using binocular disparities. So if you're a surgeon, you use a lot of these disparities and they're small, subtle changes over time in a high resolution part of your visual field. That said, if things move fast or if you're not looking right at them, these binocular disparities don't work well. Yes. Your brain just isn't good at doing binocular yeah, per- disparities. Yeah, stuff moving quickly in a peripheral vision, I, you, you can't tell anything. You can tell that something is moving in a particular direction very easily, but certainly wouldn't be able to say, oh, it's, you know. It's a centimeter closer a- <laughs> than last time. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, um, in fact, the vast majority of both your visual field and your sensitivity to even moderate, not just really fast speeds, but even just modest speeds, things that aren't sort of subtle manipulations, threading the eye of a needle, watching a snail move on your hand. I mean, that's actually where the, where it's most sensitive, is that sort of garden snail at arm's length. Um, uh, uh, turns out to, to really involve a different circuit in the brain that um, doesn't seem to interact much with this binocular disparity circuit. Um, and which um, uh, is really just relying on different motions in the two eyes. So these are complementary systems, and do you think we might even find more of these types of systems that would be able to detect three-dimensional motion too? Yeah, yeah, we're really excited about not just the fact that we at least now have had this conceptual realization that, oh, just because we label something with one word or one phrase doesn't mean the brain is going to treat the problem the same way. So you've got this you know, stuff I'm holding and manipulating circuit for motion. You've got this everything else circuit, stuff that's going to hit me in the head or things I need to look at, things I need to somehow slow down. And they're almost certainly and other sources of information. So you can close an eye and tell if something is coming towards or away from you. Things get bigger as they move towards you. Other other sources of information are also still available in in the single eye view. And so maybe these things do sort of interact with these binocular systems. Maybe they just sort of reinforce or supercharge or disambiguate those signals. Or maybe they, too, are treated differently. You know, maybe that sort of looming, something getting really big in front of you really fast, might be something that's very primal and primitive and goes well beyond the primate. Goes in, we know mice have this, and all sorts of invertebrates have it. And maybe that's a circuit that still gets some estimate of things changing their position in depth over time, um, but which immediately goes into ducking or escape reflexes. Sure. Know? So the pathways then to behavioral output, making decisions on that immediate Those level. Those might be very direct. Yeah. You know, meanwhile, things that are about to hit your head. Those are still very important and pretty primary, um, this sort of velocity-based uh, system that I was talking about. But you have some deliberation over them. You might, you know, know that branch is going to be really close to me, but you can add in all sorts of knowledge, like, oh, well, I'm wearing a bike helmet. I've done this route before. It's not going to hit me. I need not to flinch. You have control over that sort of stuff. And then, you know, the connection to behavior in the binocular disparity domain might be much more abstract, right? It might be that given my very specific goals in doing this very specialized, very slow thing, I need to perform this motor behavior, threading the eye of a needle, you know, uh, you know, it's all knitting, you know, I was going to (laughs) say. Putting sutures in on, yeah. on a cut, you know, something like that. I was going to ask if you have have thought about writing a grant to like FIFA or NFL to tell them that we can really teach you about how to optimize your ability to 
uh, well, I'll, three dimensions. I'll, I'll finish with this. I mean, I, I'm not a sports guy, but once a year, I think to myself, how crazy is it that at some point I haven't been down there with the football team or the baseball team, yeah. and you know, just started to work on these real experts. Yeah, because it's 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 really interesting. I mean, you know, we talk about these circuits as if they're things that everyone has and every primate has, and they're all the same, and they're just machines. Uh, some people are really good at using that information, and some yeah. people are pretty bad. Yeah, I'm, and, I'm quite clumsy, and <laughs> yeah, and some people start out good, and some people, um, you know, are you know need long amounts of time, but get really good. And so that's that sort of you know um, that you know domain that we want to get at, which is how's that information used? How do other parts of the brain interpret these pretty machine-like signals uh, to guide action? And I think that's where things are going to get really interesting. And we're, you know, we're, we're we're just sort of staring over the edge of being able to go with that. Cool. Well, Alex, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Today's episode of Brain Matters was sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is the leading provider of audiobooks with over 180,000 downloadable titles from all genres you can think of. For Brain Matters listeners, Audible is providing a free audiobook of your choice to try out their service. I'm going to recommend a book I'm currently reading called 2666 by Roberto Bolaño. Written near the time of the author's death, this novel deals with issues of violence and death centering around the ongoing female homicides taking place in Juarez. I highly recommend you check it out. To pick this up or another one of your choice, head on over to audiblepodcast.com slash brain matters. That's audiblepodcast.com slash brain matters. All of the transition music you've heard today is from the band Foreign Language. Full disclosure, um, my sister plays drums and sings backup vocals in this band, but I'm all for plugging great music. So check out their stuff at foreignlanguageband.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. This is Ship in a Bottle from Foreign Language. Some